You're listening to Headway, a podcast to inspire the next generation of change makers. My name is Imogen Aylwin and I'm sitting down with social entrepreneurs, business leaders and big dreamers to hear about how they're creating impact in our fast evolving world. I'm very excited today to welcome Mick Ebling, founder and CEO of Not Impossible Labs, a company committed to creating technological solutions for the sake of humanity. Mick is also the founder of the Ebling Group and the Not Impossible Foundation. He's received the Muhammad Ali Humanitarian of the Year Award, been named Wired Magazine's Agent of Change, and titled one of the world's 50 greatest leaders by Fortune Magazine. I can't wait to hear more about your unstoppable drive for change, Mick, and how you're using technology to spearhead that development. So welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you. Thanks, Imogen. Thanks for having me. So Mick, you were a film producer by trade, an optimist by nature, and you set out to perform a simple act of kindness that quickly turned into a lifelong mission. It all started with this chance invitation from a friend. So can you tell us how the Not Impossible journey began? I think a lot of great things in life happen through serendipity or accident. My wife and I were about ready to go out on a date. A friend of ours named Ubi came by. He hijacked our date and we ended up going to a gallery event, not just a typical gallery event, but a fundraising event for a person who we learned had ALS and Lou Gehrig's disease. And he was an artist who had been lying motionless in the bed for seven years. And just his story and meeting his friends, I mean, his brother and father who were the stewards of his foundation just left an impression on us. Well, that was in the springtime. Fast forward to the holidays, we decided to, instead of just doing the typical thing where you give baskets of things to your clients, um, because I had a production company at the time, we decided to make a donation in the name of our clients to the Tempt One Foundation. His name was Tony Tempt Kwan. And so we did that. We set a meeting to give them the money. Um, The father and brother, we sat down at breakfast and we chatted for a bit, gave them the money and said, what are you going to use it for? And they said, we just want to be able to talk to our son and to our brother. And that was this moment where I went, wait a second, hang on. I thought everybody had what I had seen, like Stephen Hawking machines, right? The, the, the devices that allowed people with total paralysis to move their eyes back and forth. And that would move a cursor on the screen and then selecting the letter with their eyes by blinking. And that's not the case. What I learned was that that's for if you have insurance or a lot of money. And he was talking through a piece of paper that piece of paper was just was a letter board. And so his caretakers were running their finger along the piece of paper. And then when his the finger would get to a letter, he would blink and then they would write it down. And so it was like a manual form of that. And to me, that was just appalling. I couldn't believe that in Los Angeles, where I live, that somebody was talking through a piece of paper when, when patients right next to him in the hospital had the Stephen Hawking machines. So I got all fired up and appalled and said, all right, I'm going to get you one of those Stephen Hawking machines and let's figure out how to hack it so he can draw again. Let's figure out to make it so that instead of just selecting letters, let's make it so that as he moves his eyes back and forth across the screen, that's a drawing tool. It's a paintbrush. That's a a pencil. It's a spray paint can. And that started the ball rolling in terms of this obsession about wanting to help him. And in the end, we didn't know what we were doing. We had no clue how we were going to be able to pull it off. And that actually is like a principle that we have is that when you see something that's absurd that you commit, and then you figure it out. And then I went through the process of doing what I did as a producer 
is just assembling teams of brilliant people. And so we brought the team together and we started to hack and program. And in the end came up with this device that was made of cheap sunglasses and coat hangers and web cameras and duct tape and zip ties. And it looked as hokey as you can imagine. But it uh, essentially, we had hacked an ocular recognition device so that you put the glasses on and then the web camera was mounted to the front of a coat hanger that we had duct taped to the side of the, the sunglasses. And that focused back on the pupil and that web camera was the tracking point or was the tracker and the pupil was the tracking point. After a year's worth of planning and about two and a half weeks of no sleeping, the artist Tony Tempquan drew again for the first time. And so that was the first time we'd ever tried to do something like this. There was no strategy. There was no plan. I just got caught up into the story of this guy and how absurd it was that he was unable to talk and communicate and draw. And so we did it, you know, and celebrated. And everybody flew back to the different parts of the world that they lived. And then one day we woke up and it has it had become Time Magazine's top 50 inventions of the year. It challenged me to think maybe I should keep doing this and using technology to help people and hacking and being kind of this Robin Hood do-gooder maker hacker type to go out and just see problems and use technology to help them. And then I decided not to do that because I just didn't feel like I was qualified. I didn't feel like I was the right person. I felt like I got lucky and I just wasn't willing to, to give up my life of, you know, I had a successful production company at the time and I wasn't willing to give that up. And then I got an email from the artist and the artist said, that was the first time I'd drawn anything for seven years. I feel like I'd been held underwater and someone finally reached down and pulled my head up so I could take a breath. And getting that email and kind of was the moment that we started not impossible. It was just like, all right, I don't know what, I don't know how, but (laughs) here we go. Wow. What an incredible story. I'm not surprised that you were encouraged to go on with it after receiving that email. How inspiring. You're at the forefront of the maker movement, Mick. Can you explain a little what that is for myself and for those of us at home? You know, the maker movement, is one that is, I think, classified as people who are 3D printing or soldering or, or building things. But there's been much like there's this infinite access to information via the web now. And we can, there's really nothing that we can't teach ourselves how to do. I think that the maker movement is an articulation of that. And it's people who see things and figure out how to do them themselves, as opposed to typically you would relegate creating or solving something to, to a quote expert. And the maker movement, I think, represents people stereotypically more in the technological side. But I actually, the maker movement for me is something I think that's who we are as humans. Because our entire lives, for the history of our species, we needed to open a nut. So we grabbed a rock and grabbed another rock and hit it. I think we as a species are constantly being innovative. And I think modern technology, if you look at any moment in time as a species, we're inventing things from the car to the computer to the phone, like whatever it might be. We're constantly evolving down that path. I just think now the maker movement has, because we have access to observe other people doing it and other people are showing us how to do it, it's just become more accessible for people. And we've been reminded that that's who we are as humans anyway. On the topic of hacking and tinkering, how do you go about finding the people that you collaborate with? If I ask you, hey, 
Imogen, can you donate 10,000 pounds to a cause right now? That's a lot of money, right? But if I asked you, hey, Imogen, there's something that you're really good at and there's this person and this person has this thing that's going on in their life and we're going to kind of come together to build something that can help this one person and here's the person's story and this is what they're all about and this is their background and here's a picture of them. There's a good chance that you're going to be more readily available and willing to donate of your time and of your expertise and who you are because it's something that we have access to, right? It's only limited by the hours we sleep. So we have these just brilliant, talented hackers and makers who I think have a, what I've experienced, they have a hard time saying no. Because typically, if I said, hey, Imogen, do you want to help solve hunger? Mm-hmm. Sure. Do you want, how do you want to do it? Ah, you know, it's like, that's a big thing. But if I said, hey, do you want to help solve it for this guy named Jimmy who lives down the street from me? He's, he and his family are living on the street right now. They've been evicted because of the pandemic. He lost his job. And um, he's got three beautiful kids and his wife. I've known him for a while. They've lived in the neighborhood for a while and they were just evicted. And, you know, do you, do you want to put in a couple bucks or do you want to help do something for Jimmy and his family? It's just a, that, that connection to the human, the connection to the story of the person just makes it so much more resonant for us emotionally to, to empathize with the, what it is and, or who it is that we're trying to solve the problem for. It becomes that the problem is secondary to the person. And so that's really how we focus on our, our whole design thinking, our design approach is always focused around this, this concept of help one, help many. And that ends up making it so easy to recruit people because they, they just see, they see the end goal of what it is we're asking them to try to solve it for. Mm, that's such an effective approach to connecting those in need of help and their stories with the people out there looking to help. I tend to find so many of these issues are reported as statistics, which makes it very easy to forget that there are real humans behind this data. Um, and so on that topic of storytelling, can you tell us a little more about Daniel and Project Daniel and how you came to learn of his plight in Sudan? I was out to dinner with a friend of mine. And he said, hey, how's Not Impossible going? And I said, you know, I don't know. We're just figuring it out. It was so early on. And he said, well, after dinner tonight, go home and read about this guy. I've been reading about him and I think you're going to love him. So the guy that he wanted me to read about was a doctor in Sudan named Dr. Tom Katana. And I read about him. I was inspired about him. The story that I read about um, was in this article by Alex Perry in Time Magazine. And he talked about one particular boy whose name was Daniel, who had both of his arms blown off in this bombing accident, and he had to try to save his life. In learning about what he was doing over there, and particularly this one story of Daniel, it just kicked me in the gut learning about this young boy. And, and I, I saw a picture of him after the amputations. And not only did I see the picture of him, but I also read that what he said after he woke up and realized he was a double amputee. He said, if I could die, I would, because now I'm going to be such a burden to my family. And to me, that a 12-year-old boy would say that was just appalling. And so I did what I did with the iRider. I built a team together. We flew them all in. We started to hack and program and create. And, and eventually, we came up with a, a 3D printed prosthetic that allowed Daniel to feed himself for the first time in two years since he had both of his arms blown off. And that was, I mean, the iRider 
was the kind of the origin of Not Impossible, but Project Daniel really put us on the map because that story went so far and so wide and was so compelling to people that it really set the course for kind of who we are as a company. And so you gathered this group of talented makers, coders, hackers who all flew out to Los Angeles. Can you talk a little about the process of making the prosthetic and perhaps some of the challenges that that came up along the way? It's the same difficulties we came up with the iRider and the same difficulties we come up with everything is that nothing ever works the first time around. It always is, is difficult. Like one of the chapters in my book is fail, 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 succeed, repeat as necessary. So we've kind of learned that the process of failing is the process of succeeding. As long as you celebrate and reflect on what you have failed with and on and what you used and what worked and what didn't work, but as long as you really reflect on that and use that as the building block for the next iteration. We quickly prove, you know, 20, 30 ways that it's not going to work. But if you can take a couple parts out that do work along the way, then that, that's what really leads to that end result. So following on from that, you flew out to Sudan in an effort to try and find Daniel and to build him two prosthetic arms. Can you tell us about that process out there and really, I suppose, what it was like once you got on the ground? Once we got on the ground, Wow. I mean, first of all, the refugee camp, Yida, it was massive. It was 70,000 people and growing. And that was a shock. We were taken in by a group that kind of housed us there and gave us a chance to figure things out and get our bearings. And that's called Samaritan's Purse. We set up the shop there and we started to experiment. We met Daniel. He would show up at the at the workshop every day. We would start to go through the process of, of building the arm and fitting him. And again, everything went wrong to the point where it got so hot that we couldn't 3D print because the filament was melting to itself. And so then we printed at night when it was colder. And when we printed at night, the 3D printer had lights. And so lights attract bugs except for these weren't bugs. These were like giant flying pterodactyls, right? And these things were dive bombing our printer so that the bug carcasses were jamming up our prints. Like it was just one thing after another, after another, after another. But we just, you know, every morning Daniel would show up and how do you, how do you say to a young boy, oh, sorry, it's too hot. We can't do this for you. Oh, sorry, your bugs are too big here. We can't do it for you, right? We just kept pushing through and you know, the process of, of going through that was just, it's the combination of lots of people who had come together to try to make this a reality. Most importantly was a, a gentleman by the name of Richard Van Oss, who really, without him, this wouldn't have been successful. We wouldn't have succeeded. He was a, a carpenter in Johannesburg who accidentally cut his fingers off in a table saw accident, ended up making a hack together 3D fingers for himself and a, a prosthetic called Robohand. It was the birth of how we saw the Daniel arm working. And, but he, you know, I was getting him on the satellite phone to have him walk me through things. And it was just, it, I just looked back at that experience and it was just failure after failure after failure. But event, I mean, we just kept pushing through and eventually we created this way. I'll never forget the day that we put a big plate out for him to try to experiment with to see how the thing would work. And he took a big scoop of pumpkin and put it in his mouth. And the grin that he had on his face when he was feeding himself was was so incredible. Gosh, what an amazing story. And from what I understand, you've also left behind a 3D printing lab in the camp there. So now the people are able to to continue your work. Is that is that right? Well, we did, um, but we made a big mistake. 
And our big mistake was that we ended up going up to Dr. Tom to this remote area of the Nuba Mountains. We taught the villagers how to 3D print. And when we left, they 3D printed. By the time we got back to LA, they had 3D printed arms. And it was just, it was amazing. The biggest mistake we made, and there was no premeditation around this. I had asked for the hospital to produce a bunch of people who I could teach. But the people that they produced, they were all men. And in a war-torn country, what happens to men in, in war, right? Especially here, they all got conscripted or they moved on or they went out looking for work. And the biggest mistake I ever made was not teaching more women to be able to do that because especially in agrarian societies and in the developing world, men are flaky, you know? And women, you know, the women, the grandmother, they're very much these matriarchal societies where the grandmother, the mother, they never leave. They are the rock, they are the pillar. And I wish we would have taught them to do it. And I look back in some of the footage and there was women standing in the background watching what was going on. And, you know, I wish we would have brought them in to do it. So what ended up happening is that most of the people that we taught moved on. And so production stopped. Um, and we went back years later and tried to introduce a new solution called, uh, we called it the Department of Accessible Prosthetics. And it was around the creation of a new type of, of arm that didn't require 3D printing, that you actually showed up with different sleeves that you would fit to someone like small, medium, and large, and then you could assemble it for them right then and there. So unfortunately, the arms are not currently being made there. But I think we did break some ground in terms of setting up the world's first 3D printing prosthetic lab. And we did it in a war-torn country. We did it on solar-charged batteries. And we did it in less than ideal situations. And kind of that's, for us, was the big success is that even though production happened uh, after we left and then eventually subsided, I think it really proved the fact that you can go into really remote places and instigate these devices or these manufacturing processes of change. Mm. Well, it sounds like a fascinating challenge that you were working on with some really transferable insights for the next time that you're working in a similar environment. Mick, another project that you and your team are working on is Hunger Not Impossible. I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about this challenge and if there are any ways that you break down problems of this magnitude into more actionable steps. Hunger, for us, we see it, especially coming out of the pandemic. Hunger, for us, is a systemic social issue that has been exacerbated by the increase in unemployment and school closures and restaurant closures, that if we don't deal with this, we've got massive issues on our hands, right? You're seeing this disparity and divide in terms of how much people make a year with the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And I say this harshly, but okay, maybe the poor can figure their stuff out until you take food out of the equation. Now, that's a non-starter, right? Like, this divide that exists in our society, when food becomes a question mark, you're talking about destabilizing the very essence of who we are as a species. We have been, since the birth of time for us on this planet, we have been taught to forage and hunt and figure out how to get food for ourselves. Finding food and getting food, that's the priority. Now you fast forward to where we are now, and now you've got people who aren't sure where their next meal is coming from. There's a quote by uh, a German playwright named Berkholf Brecht, 
And his saying is food first, then morality. So I might have my ideals and principles and values. Those go completely to the wayside if I'm hungry. I have to feed my family. I have to feed myself. And I don't care about robbing somebody or or committing crime of some sort. If it's about getting food, what else am I going to do? So we saw food insecurity and the the pandemic of hunger as something that we had to do something with. So we started to go down our design process and design thinking on this. And one of the things that we did and the the people that we interviewed was the fact that every person that we talked to and we asked them, you know, what do you prize most? They always talked about their cell phone. Okay, this is really interesting. This is a commonality that race, creed, color, religion, anything doesn't matter. Everyone's got a cell phone. 96% of the people in this country, I think the, the number is slightly less globally, but Mongolian sheep farmers have cell phones. You're talking about some of the people in the remote corners of the planet. So we said, all right, well, let's actually create a solution that uses that as that commonality. And how do we leverage that as a way to get people fed? And we wanted to get away from constantly making people have to migrate towards sites where they would be distributed food because one in his last year was not COVID friendly, but two, that's not really how I think we're built in today's society of having to go far to get something that's so essential. We wanted to make it convenient. So we created a way that leveraged the cell phone as a tool to create means by which people who were food insecure could get to geo-convenient, proximate solutions to alleviating their food insecurity. And that proximate solution was restaurants. Now, add into the equation the fact that restaurants were struggling, that we said, well, wait, if there's a way for us to help to navigate people who need food to places that are they're the experts on delivering food and those people are struggling, then you've created two benefactors here, the people who need to be fed and the people who are doing the feeding. And we could do it in a way that's convenient. So we created a platform, an enterprise that we give to the large nonprofits, to the governments, to the institutions. They input the phone numbers of the people they're serving into that system. It then sends them a text message. And we chose text versus app because apps require data plans. And a lot of the people that we were serving were using phones that just could call and text. So the person initiates it, they type the word hungry, then the chatbot responds and says, enter your address. Now we've manually geolocated them. Then we populate restaurants that are close to them. So then the person on the other side who's food insecure has agency and has choice to select a food product or a restaurant that they want to go to once they've chosen, say it's Subway. Now we give them the selection of sandwiches from that restaurant and they're all curated so that they're healthy. They get to choose the sandwich that they want. And then they get to walk in to the restaurant just like you and I would walk into a restaurant and pick up a to-go order meal. And the meal is paid for by the sponsoring organization on the back end. So the sponsoring organization doesn't have to do anything different except for enter the phone numbers into the system and then tie a bank account to it. The restaurant gets to make money when they wouldn't have made money otherwise. And then the person who's needing to be fed, they get to go in and walk in and claim a meal, not as Mick, the man who's homeless or struggling to put food on the table, but just like anybody else who's walking into the restaurant. So we're approaching our one year anniversary. And that was our commitment and our response to the pandemic. And just crossed over a couple months ago, 
our 100,000 meal point, which was immediately overshadowed by the fact that we got our first million meal order out of the city of Chicago. And then subsequently, two weeks after that, we got a, a half a million meal order out of the city of Santa Monica. So we're really excited about it. You can tell I've been blabbering on for a while. I get really excited about it. I'm not surprised you're excited about it. It sounds like a really innovative approach to a very pressing challenge. And I love how you've integrated dignity into, into the service for the people using it. I'd like to learn a little more about how Not Impossible Labs is structured. So perhaps you can tell us about the business model and how you're able to sustainably fund projects like the ones we've spoken about today. We fund our projects through two ways. One, I have been blessed with the ability to go and speak around the world about the work that we do. So I'm able to channel some of the dollars over into Not Impossible so that we can fund our initiatives. Um, and then we have corporate partners who come on board, who will back a particular absurdity that we're solving and give us the ability to, to really dig in and, and solve that. So that's those are the two means by which we have, have gotten to. We're now 10 years old, and that's how we, we didn't know how we were going to figure it out at the beginning. It's been, a, it's been a good path. It's been a good path to get us there. Just as my final question for you today, um, I like to ask the guests at the end of the show if there's something that they would like to share with the audience that's been inspiring them lately. Is there anything that's keeping you fired up at the minute? I love stories and I love the passion of stories. And so I love not only from a nonfiction standpoint, watching documentaries and learning about the, the trials and tribulations and struggles and accomplishments of other people, but even in a fiction world, you know, kind of empathizing with the actor or with, with the story or the person that they're trying to tell. So I just watched The Sound of Metal, which is an incredible film about someone who became deaf, kind of their struggle. And I'm very connected to the deaf community because of some of the things that we've created. We created a device that allows the deaf to experience music through their skin. Uh, Mandy Harvey, if you don't know Mandy Harvey, she's a deaf musician, absolutely the most angelic voice you'll ever hear. Um, her story and, and who she is as a person inspires me. There's a guy by the name of Eric Weimer, uh, who is the first person to ever climb all seven summits, including kayak in the Grand Canyon. Uh, and he's blind. He is a total just badass. If you ever want to feel insignificant, hang out with Eric. He's a friend of mine and we'll go to climbing gyms and climb. And he just absolutely destroys me. So, you know, I, I'm incredibly inspired by that. Yeah, those are some of the things that I, I, those are some of the people that right now are really inspiring me. From a reading standpoint, my, my go-to book that I try to do once a year is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, um, which is just a staple to, to really, really remind you about what's important in life. For our audience listening at home, I'd like to leave you with a quote of Mix that will help you to keep pushing the boundaries and attempting the seemingly impossible. If not now, then when? If not me, then who? So thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another week's episode of Headway. As ever, you can find all of the resources from our chat today at head-way.co.uk. And last but not least, a massive thank you, Mick, for joining us on the show today. I could have spoken to you for many hours more and learned more about all of the fascinating projects that you're involved with. Perhaps you can let our listeners know how they can find out about Not Impossible Labs online. And once again, a massive thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure hearing about your work. Thanks so much, Imogen. And if anybody wants to know more about Not Impossible, you can go to notimpossible.com and see more of our, our stories and the, the podcast and the films and things that we've made about other people who are making the impossible not impossible.